Many of us, when describing our side of a dispute, have a tendency to skew the facts so that they appear to weigh in in our favor. This is human nature, as none of us enjoy admitting when we are wrong about anything. Now, what I've learned in my 20 plus years of practicing law is that more often than not, the truth with regard to any given dispute between two parties is not a black and white proposition. No, typically it falls squarely within the gray areas of this thing we call life. When two respective sides are telling their version of what they believe is the truth, there are indeed kernels of truth within both tales. Because at least initially, one's own perception of the events that have transpired are what dictate in that person's mind what actually may or may not have occurred. Now, as I'm sure you know, all disputes do not end up in a court of law. As a matter of fact, most of them do not, as suing someone or a company is typically because every other attempt at settling the matter has failed. So if you are an unbiased third party trying to mediate a dispute between two people, always remember this one absolute fact, which is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Such was the case for Anthony Garcia with respect to his residency at St. Elizabeth's in upstate New York. It is clear from the hospital side of things that they believed that Garcia was not a competent physician and that his bedside manner left a lot to be desired. From Garcia's side of it, he believed that he was being treated more unfairly and with greater disrespect than other residents because of his Hispanic heritage. Now, we didn't see any indication within the reports that we received from Garcia's time in Utica that anyone on the staff of St. Elizabeth's was racially motivated in treating him differently. But that doesn't mean that the situation did not exist, not by a long shot. And for that matter, in Garcia's mind, it did exist. That's the funny thing about perception, is our own perceptions are shaped in large part by our life experiences. So if Anthony Garcia had experienced racial bias while growing up in Walnut, California, well, that's going to stick with him. And that will always be the backdrop in his mind as to interactions that he will have throughout the course of his life. All that being said, the individuals on the staff at St. Elizabeth that had issues with Garcia, in theory, would have no idea about that side of Garcia's personal history, and in turn, would have no reason to know that he may be particularly sensitive to what he may believe are slights or indiscretions that are racially motivated. And the same thing can be said in regards to Garcia's lack of knowledge about personal feelings with regards to race of the individuals that he took issue with. That amounts to nothing more than assumptions, which again, are formed based on our own life experiences. Remember, we're not talking about instances of racism which are abundantly clear, as most times they are not. We're talking about those almost imperceptible instances where someone is treated even just slightly differently based solely on ethnicity or the color of their skin. It happens constantly and is incredibly difficult to prove, especially in a court of law. So at the end of the day, 
Garcia may be completely off base about the staff that he had issue with and what their motivations were in treating him the way he believed that they were treating him. And as far as those individuals that had issues with Garcia, who would, in theory, all be unaware of Garcia's potential sensitivity, did in fact say or do things that would objectively not be considered racist, but subjectively to Garcia would be. And for him, it would be very real. Look, interpersonal work relationships are complicated as the individuals, especially in the beginning, really don't know anything about the other person. So based on all that, it has always been my belief that what may or may not have happened at St. Elizabeth's falls somewhere within that gray area I was just talking about. The difference for Garcia, as opposed to St. Elizabeth's, is that it sticks to him. It follows him for the rest of his career and ultimately will make its way into a courtroom in Douglas County, Nebraska, where it just so happens that Garcia is literally fighting for his life. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 16. I should have concurred. We left off with a Fed and a cop from Omaha trying to extract information from the Russian up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada that will either clear him from being a suspect or will keep him on their radar as a person of interest. The Russian supplied Warner and Robitaille with his schedule for the autopsies that he was supposed to have performed during the month of March, and in particular, on the 13th. But it was nothing more than that. It was a copy of a schedule. It in no way indicated whether the Russian actually was in attendance and did, in fact, perform the autopsies. The boys in blue left Canada feeling less than satisfied in what they were able to extract and also believed wholeheartedly that the Russian was less than honest about several things, which left both men wondering, if you're not involved, why lie? What this amounts to for Warner is more work. But at this exact moment in time, based on his initial gut reaction to the Russian and his responses, it will be time well spent. What lays ahead of him is to try and locate and interview any doctors that may have been in the room during any autopsy that may have been performed by the Russian on the 13th or 14th for that matter. Because you know, travel. Warner will also have to track down any border crossings that the Russian may have made between March 12th and 14th. The potential border crossings are of less import to Warner, however, because it would seem that anyone who was planning this type of crime with this amount of violence and who would have to cross a border to do it would make damn sure that they were not leaving a paper trail, particularly on the days surrounding the murders. So while these records are certainly helpful, they are in no way definitive that the Russian isn't their guy. Now, the only thing that will accomplish that is another doctor who is in the room with the Russian who has absolutely no reason to lie on his behalf 
And who says the Russian was there, cutting open a cadaver on March 13th? That's the only thing that's clearing the Russian once and for all. So in terms of what is left on the table as far as potential persons of interest, some eight months into the investigation, the Russian is about all Omaha PD has left. And that isn't giving anyone involved in any way, shape, or form the warm and fuzzies. Now, while I'm sure you're anxious out there to hear all about what Warner digs up on the Russians' comings and goings, you're going to have to bide your time just for a bit as we're going to start looking into Anthony Garcia's time that he spent in the pathology residency program at Creighton University in Omaha. And if you're wondering why we continue to look into Garcia's past from the early 2000s with regards to a double homicide that took place in 2008, well, the answer to that is simple. It was this exact point in Garcia's life, this time that he spent studying and working at Creighton, that would become first law enforcement and then the state's primary motive as to why Anthony Garcia was their guy. So, let's dig in. In late November of 1999, as the writing on the wall was becoming crystal clear that Anthony Garcia's first residency was coming to an unfortunate and premature end, he was presented with the uncomfortable circumstance of having to inform his parents his parents, who were so very proud of what he had accomplished thus far in his life and in his career. With the fact that he was no longer a part of the residency program at St. Elizabeth's, this was not the type of life event that he was just going to be able to, quote, fail to mention to his parents. Because what his termination meant is that it was a distinct possibility that he was going to have to move back to Walnut, California and move back into his parents' home and more specifically, back into his childhood bedroom, while he tried to figure out what his next move, professionally, would be. As Anthony contemplated the different scenarios that he was currently faced with, there were none that were less appealing than moving back into his parents' home. So he made the decision then and there that he was going to have to do everything in his power to ensure that that did not happen. While it's true that Anthony ultimately understood that he would have to explain to his parents that he was leaving the family practice residency in Utica, but he had reached the conclusion that this would be infinitely less upsetting and disappointing to his parents if he was simply pivoting to another residency program that was of greater interest to him. So the quest to find another program that will accept him is paramount among the things that he must accomplish in very short order. And he wastes little time in applying to different residency programs around the country, including a residency in the pathology department at Creighton University. Garcia's application is forwarded to Creighton on December 1st of 1999, some 10 days before he officially resigns in order to avoid being terminated from St. Elizabeth's program. In case you were wondering, Anthony did not list his residency at St. Elizabeth in his application to Creighton. So, in early December, Anthony makes his way back home to California, shortly after his resignation, and avoids discussing his brief stint at St. Elizabeth with his parents, other than to let them know that he's been there long enough to know that family medicine is not the area of medicine that he wants to practice. And in consideration of that, he lets them know 
that he has applied to other residency programs that are more suited to what interests him. It's about December 17th, 1999, and Anthony's been home for about a week. On this day, he receives a letter from Creighton University, which states that they would like to interview him for a residency within their pathology department. The interview is set for December 21st, 1999, and where else but Omaha, Nebraska. On December 20th, Anthony hops on a flight and flies to Omaha in order to attend the interview at St. Joseph Hospital, which he does, and the interview goes well, as he is not questioned about his time at St. Elizabeth. It's almost as if it never happened. And in the minds of the doctors that conducted the interview, well, it doesn't exist. Feeling confident, Anthony boards a plane and flies back home to California to celebrate the holidays with his family. And he's in good spirits. Why wouldn't he be? Because everything is coming up roses for Anthony Garcia this holiday season. So Christmas and New Year's come and go, and the world, fortunately, doesn't come to an end as the year 2000 rings in, as we somehow survived the catastrophic nightmare that was Y2K. Anyway, on January 13, 2000, Anthony receives a letter from Creighton University, wherein they offer him a position as a first-year resident in their pathology program. The program is set to begin on July 1st of 2000. They also inform him within the letter that he has until February 1st to accept the offer. The relief and joy that Anthony feels as he reads this letter is palpable. He excitedly informs Fred Nestello that he has been accepted into a pathology program in Omaha, Nebraska. And they are thrilled for him and proud. But you know, as I sit here today writing this script, it's hard not to think about how this singular letter changed the course of Anthony Garcia's life so dramatically. If he is in fact not responsible for the deaths of Shirley Sherman and Thomas Hunter and Roger and Mary Brumbeck, then this letter is akin to a death sentence, as it will be his time at Creighton that provides law enforcement with the link between the two sets of murders and will ultimately be developed into the theory of the state's case against him. If in fact he is the perpetrator, then we must wonder if Creighton never offered him the position, would he still have become the type of monster capable of the level of rage and violence required to commit such heinous acts? It's an impossible question to answer, but one thing is for certain. The arc of Anthony Garcia's life was unequivocally altered on January 13th, 2000. Anthony, of course, is unaware of this fact on what would otherwise most likely be considered one of the best days of his entire life. On the very day that he receives the offer, Anthony faxes back a handwritten acceptance letter to Creighton. The die, so to speak, has been cast. In late June of 2000, with thoughts of the endless possibilities this opportunity may bring swimming about in his mind, Anthony moves into his apartment in Omaha and begins a new chapter in his life as he prepares to begin his residency at Creighton. 
On the morning of July 1st, 2000, Anthony enters St. Joseph Hospital to begin his journey on becoming a pathologist. And in the first several months, all is well. Now, if you really aren't sure about just exactly what a residency is, and you're wondering, how does it relate to becoming a doctor? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it's your favorite time. It's my favorite time. It's what the hell is a residency and why does it matter time. Now, clearly I'm a lawyer and not a doctor, but I do have a pretty firm grasp on what it takes to become a doctor of medicine and where residencies fit in within that puzzle. So we will give you a snapshot of the process because it's important that you have a clear understanding of what it is and why they are so important in terms of progressing through a medical career. Because after all, as you will learn in the near future, the state's entire theory of their case revolves exclusively around the concept that these failed residencies haunted Garcia throughout his career. So much so that eventually these career skeletons in the closet drove him to becoming a murderer. Now, there are many, many holes that can and will be poked in and through the state's theory, but that is for a different day. So let's just take baby steps first and get clear on just exactly what it was that Anthony Garcia was doing with his time in Omaha back in the year 2000. So when someone graduates from medical school, they receive an MD, which stands for Doctor of Medicine. And though you are an MD at that point, you are not a physician. So you can't just walk out of medical school, hang a shingle and start cutting people open. And thank God for that. Now the equivalent degree for law school is a JD or a Juris Doctorate. And once a person has earned their JD, they must sit for a bar exam. Each individual state handles its own licensing as far as attorneys go. So for instance, when I graduated from Chicago Kent School of Law, I then sat for the Illinois Bar approximately three months later, which was a two-day exam encompassing one full day of multiple choice questions and one full day of essay questions. Then you wait in a petrified state of terror for about a month and a half to get the results to see if you are officially our lawyer. You cannot practice law if you have not passed at least one state's bar exam. So failing the bar is devastating, but not because it's one and done, because you can take a bar exam until you pass or you give up, but instead because it derails the start of your career and is also a massive blow to one's confidence. But I digress, let's get back to medicine. Medical licensing, much like attorney licensing, is a state-to-state proposition. Any state that you would ever seek to practice medicine in, you must get licensed by that state's board of medicine. Now, the requirements to become a physician vary from state to state, but all 50 states require the passage of all three steps of the United States Medical Licensing Examination, also known as the USMLE, in order to become a licensed physician. The three steps of the exam all test different aspects of a doctor's knowledge. The step one exam, which is also known as the boards, is used to determine if a med student or graduate has a firm grasp on the concepts in various fields of science, namely anatomy, behavioral sciences, biochemistry, microbiology, pathology, pharmacology, and physiology, 
all of which relate to the practice of medicine, and if they know how to apply these concepts properly. Typically, most students take step one after the second year of med school. This exam is eight hours in length and consists of 280 multiple choice questions. Now, as of 2022, this exam is now a pass-fail proposition as opposed to giving the applicants their score, which range from one to 300, with a score of 194 being required to pass. Now, there are many reasons for this switch in the score reporting, but we're not gonna get into that. Now, if the step one exam is passed, step two comes next. This bad boy is a nine hour standardized exam which focuses on clinical knowledge and is usually taken by med students during their fourth year of med school. The step two exam focuses on areas of medicine such as internal medicine, obstetrics, gynecology, pediatrics, psychiatry, and surgery, among other areas as well. Now, the step two exam is formatted in such a way that the examinee is given a hypothetical clinical situation and they must provide one or more of the following, a diagnosis, a prognosis, an indication of how the diagnosed disease progresses and what can and should be done to potentially remedy the disease. This step is also scored on a one to 300 scale with a passing score as of 2022 being 214. Once a candidate passes, the final exam is the step three exam. This exam is typically taken after med school, usually during one's residency, and is a two-day affair, which is made up of 75% multiple choice and 25% clinical case simulations. The step three exam focuses on general topics that are mandatory in order to understand and practice general medicine or family medicine. Like steps one and two, it's scored on a one to 300 scale with a score of 198 being required to pass. Now, once an MD has passed the step three of the USMLE, you might think that they are now finally given a license. And in a majority of states, you would be absolutely wrong because most states require at least one year of postgraduate education, also known as a residency. Now, this is where a young doctor starts to try and figure out if there is a particular specialty field of medicine that they want to practice in and if so, this becomes their targeted residencies. Residencies take place in teaching hospitals, and the residents are supervised by attending physicians who oversee and ultimately must approve of any given decision that a resident may make with regards to a patient. There are also faculty physicians on staff who are paid to be there to teach the residents, which is done through practical examinations and presentations and lectures. The length of training for given fields can vary massively. Say for instance, you wanna practice family medicine. The residency program will require three years of additional training. If you wanna be a neurosurgeon, a whopping seven years of training is required before you will be licensed to dig around in people's brains. Now, if you're wondering if residents get paid during their training, the answer is yes, they do. And according to Wiki, the average salary for a first-year resident is about 45000 for an 80-hour work week. Yeah, that's right. I said 80 hours, and that math equals eleven twenty-five an hour. Ouch. And on top of that, they had to enact labor laws to get these educational hospitals to stop working its residents 100-plus hours a week. Because why wouldn't they? 
they're getting these residents for far below what their market value is, so why not exploit them, right? So, that's it. Lesson over. I hope this gives you a better understanding of the ins and outs of becoming a doctor and the importance of residency programs because it will put everything that we're about to look at into context. Now, Anthony's first month of residency is spent making autopsy and surgical pathology rotations. Rotations are the bedrock foundation of any residency program. What they are is a combination of listening, observing, and a monitored hands-on practical experience. And for Anthony, it seems to go well. And every month, the rotation will change to a different practice area within the field of pathology, which, generally speaking, is the study of causes and effects of disease or injury. Now, this type of study is typically done through examination of surgically removed organs, tissues, and bodily fluids. So that being said, you probably surmised that pathologists are dealing with the dead quite a bit. So considering that it appears that Anthony Garcia was not a fan of people in general, there is probably no area of medicine that is better suited for him. However, pathologists do interact with live patients in certain circumstances, but in comparison to every other field of medicine, it is far less frequent. So at the end of each rotation, a resonant evaluation form called a post-rotation review is prepared by the assigned rotation faculty member that Garcia worked under. This form has 10 areas that are evaluated, which are attendance, technical proficiency, attitude, the ability to work with staff and faculty, the ability to work with clinicians, skills and knowledge acquisition during rotation, oral presentation skills, written presentation skills, and overall performance. Finally, completed timesheet review. Not sure what that is, but it's on there. Each category is ranked on a one to five scale with one being unacceptable and five being outstanding. Now, Anthony in his first review received all fours and fives in all 10 categories. And his assigned faculty wrote the following narrative. Quote, Dr. Garcia has been very diligent, works hard and has made the transition from clinician to pathologist. He has great attitude and is developing skills in pathology at an appropriate rate for a first year. So right from the get, Garcia seems to have shed his perceived bad attitude that he purportedly displayed at St. Elizabeth's. Anthony's second rotation in August, and real quick before we move on, if me referring to Anthony Garcia as Anthony or Tony on occasion irks you, as seeming a bit too familiar, well, let's not forget that he was my client. So I actually am personally familiar with him. And I can tell you this, I never addressed him as Garcia when I was speaking with him. So I won't be doing it here either, not exclusively at least. Just wanted to clear that up. So yeah, his second rotation in transfusions and blood bank appears that it went well too, as again, he scored all fours and fives on all 10 areas. His third rotation in September was once again in surgical pathology. And once again, he scores all fours and fives. His fourth rotation in October, more of the same. A solid, if not spectacular review from yet another assigned faculty member. Then comes November and December. As Anthony hits his fifth month of his first year and walks into his third surgical pathology rotation, expecting the same assigned faculty member as he had in his first two rotations, only to be greeted by Dr. Chandra Boutra. 
Garcia doesn't know it, but it is on this day that the end of his time at Creighton will begin. The next eight months will be filled with Garcia being ridiculed, degraded, harshly criticized, all based on Boutra's perceived notion that he has little knowledge, no basic surgical skills, a bad attitude, no initiative, and is lazy. These two people will mix like oil and water. And it's hard to understand how during his first four months that three different doctors gave Garcia nothing but glowing reviews. Something is askew here. Now, in fairness to Butra, she is apparently a very stern and coarse faculty member and is not prone to sugarcoat things when she observes deficiencies in a resident. She apparently is a huge proponent of the tough love minus the love style of teaching. I think it's safe to say that most people do not enjoy that style of being taught or coached as it requires very thick skin and an exceptional amount of self-control in order to stop from firing back on the antagonist. Anthony Garcia, my friends, possesses neither of these qualities. And as such, this relationship quickly devolves into a mutual hatred society. The problem for Garcia in this scenario is that she's the boss. She is the one who writes the reviews. She is the one who can make or break his future, not just at Creighton, but permanently. But Anthony can only take so much. He had enjoyed his first four months so much and was progressing along swimmingly, and now that's all over. Now there's a villain. He has an enemy, and it's an enemy with power and influence within the Creighton community. Initially, this may have been nothing more than a cultural difference in terms of how people are raised to speak to and address one another, but it quickly turns into something else, something toxic from both Boutra and Garcia. And the man in the middle of it all, the buffer, so to speak, is Bill Hunter. As we heard the Russians say about Hunter, that he was the perceived advocate for the residents. He was the one to give voice to the voiceless. He would be the one to address concerns that residents may have with certain faculty members. He was a good guy, but remember, the Russians said he played off his politics. So his advocacy would only go so far. And ultimately, if push comes to shove, Hunter will have to pick a side, and that side without question will be the faculty in Creighton University, especially over a first-year resident, especially in a situation where there are no allegations of serious misconduct by either party, but instead a clash of personalities, which is what this is, or what it was. Garcia ultimately ends up surviving his two months with Butra in her rotation without being officially reprimanded. He does this at his own peril by skipping several of his surgical pathology sessions with her, which of course only exacerbates the already tense relationship. But nonetheless, he moves into his seventh rotation, which takes place in January of 2001. And he is thrilled to find out that he will no longer be dealing with Butra, at least not in his surgical rotations. But has the damage been done? 
as the toxic relationship between himself and Butra soured him on Creighton and the program? Well, his post-rotation review from January gives no real indication of what's going on with Anthony mentally, as he performs well during this rotation and again scores all fours and fives in his evaluation and his assigned faculty rights. Quote, Dr. Garcia did a very good job during this rotation. End quote. So, on its face, it would seem that all is well. But the reality is that this is a small department, which means that there is a 0% chance that Garcia and Butra can avoid each other and that they will see each other every day, even if they are not in rotation together. No, he will continue to see her and have to deal with her and vice versa until the bitter end. On January 26th of 2001, Bill Hunter requests to have a sit-down with Garcia in the hopes that he can smooth over some of the rough edges that have developed and continue to grow more and more jagged with each passing day. Garcia is already leery of Hunter, and he knows where his loyalties lie at this juncture. So he heads into that meeting expecting the worst. Bill Hunter asks him to have a seat and proceeds to open his file. He then begins reviewing Anthony's progress in the program over the past seven months, noting that he has completed four rotations of surgical pathology, one rotation of blood bank, and two rotations of hematopathology, as well as 17 autopsies performed. Hunter tells Garcia that generally he's done well on the clinical pathology rotations. However, during the atomic pathology rotations, that he appeared to be somewhat passive and really seems to be lacking enthusiasm for surgical pathology. Anthony sits quietly as Hunter continues his assessment. It also appears to me that you're also most interested in just getting your work done, and you seem to be avoiding surgical pathology sessions with both myself and Dr. Butra, providing us with the excuse that you were performing autopsies. This isn't good, Anthony. It reflects poorly on you. Garcia remains silent. Look, I know that you and Dr. Butra are butting heads a bit, but you cannot let that hamper your ability to get your work done. It's extremely important that you take initiative and responsibility for all of the surgical pathology specimens when they are assigned to you. Do you understand the importance of doing that? Anthony tells Hunter that he does and that he will persevere to do better in the future. Garcia knows that to complain bitterly about Butra and her teaching methods at this particular time will fall upon deaf ears as far as Hunter is concerned. So, he elects to simply pick up his ball and go home without providing Hunter with any rebuttal. He thanks Dr. Hunter for his time and leaves his office. In February of 2001, things begin to spiral out of control for Garcia as he can see the writing on the wall. At this point, his spirit is crushed, and his ambition to try and right the ship has all but abandoned him. He is now firmly convinced that Butra has poisoned the rest of the staff against him. Whether or not this is actually true isn't relevant to what Garcia believes is happening. In his mind, Butra is running around the hospital defaming him to anyone that will take the time to listen. There is no indication 
from what we have received in Discovery that Boutro was in fact doing this, at least in the sense that she was not drafting letters, memos, or notes to Hunter and Brumbeck complaining about Garcia, at least not initially. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't happening verbally. From Garcia's perspective, she was a rude, demeaning, disrespectful piece of shit. From Boutra's perspective, Garcia was a rude, incompetent, disrespectful piece of shit. And neither person would or could be convinced otherwise that their assessment of the other was incorrect. Anthony's utter disappointment and disdain begins to manifest itself on February 9th of 2001 as Bill Hunter receives a call from a clerical supervisor at Creighton informing him of a telephone conversation between Garcia and a doctor from a Legion hospital system regarding an autopsy, wherein one of her clerks in the department noted Garcia's unprofessional language, which appeared to be totally uncalled for. From someone who is hearing only half the conversation, she informs Hunter that after Garcia had hung up the phone, that the doctor from a Legion called back and asked for Garcia's name. Hunter thanked the clerk and attempted to contact the doctor from a Legion in order to get his side of the story. He was unsuccessful in making contact. He doesn't attempt to contact Garcia to get his side of the event, which I find strange, but not really. Hunter prepares this memorandum and places it in Garcia's file, but he doesn't do this until the 16th of February. His final sentence of this particular memo is this, quote, this is another example of Dr. Garcia's continued unprofessional behavior, end quote. Now, if you're curious as to what unprofessional behavior he's referring to, well, it hasn't happened yet. Yet this letter was prepared specifically to bolster Creighton's case. On February 14th, Two days before Hunter's memo on Garcia's unprofessional behavior was drafted, Garcia attends a lecture being given by Dr. Boutra, during which she begins asking Garcia detailed questions, one after another. Anthony is then questioned about why he doesn't know the material when he is unable to answer one of her inquiries. This goes on for the entirety of the lecture. This undressing of Garcia is of course done in front of all of his fellow residents. He is embarrassed and mortified. Later in the day on the 14th, Garcia is in the middle of performing an autopsy when Hunter and another doctor enter the autopsy room. Both men approach the operating table and quietly observe Garcia while he continues to perform his autopsy. Both Hunter and the other doctor begin making some suggestions to Garcia about autopsy technique. And apparently, Garcia responds in a quote, somewhat disrespectful manner that was not appropriate for a resident, end quote. Hunter does not articulate in his memo exactly what was said by Garcia. He does note that after he left the room that the other doctor explained why certain things are done during an autopsy. However, he does not indicate whether or not Garcia was receptive to the additional commentary. I'm going to assume because the document is silent as to Garcia being non-receptive, that he in fact was receptive. Because I am certain that had he been non-receptive, Hunter would have 100% written about Garcia's insolence in the report. So I consider this to be a bit of an admission by omission of sorts. It's 
pretty telling, though. On February 15th, shit is snowballing and quick-like, if you can't already tell. At 5 a.m., Butcher drafts and sends the following email to Bill Hunter and CC's only Roger Brumbeck. Remember, at this point in time, Hunter is the director of the department and Brumbeck is the department chair. Quote, today in the CTTR conference, Dr. Garcia was extremely unpleasant in his behavior. Without any reason or provocation, he began mouthing off, calling me names, and in spite of repeated efforts of the chief resident, he continued his belligerent tirade. In my opinion, this recent event, in addition to his past attitude problems, poor performances, problems with other staff members, and writing anonymous notes slandering faculty members, should go on his record and he should be put on probation. And if this continues, his contract should be terminated. Now, my initial thought with respect to this email was, if the notes were anonymous, then how did she know that Garcia had written them? Was she really taking the time out of her busy day to make handwriting comparisons? If so, she really does have an axe to grind. Make no mistake, this thing with Butra and Garcia was most definitely a two-way street, and Butra, without question, had all of the leverage. Additionally, it is unclear whether this email is pertaining to the verbal beatdown that Garcia took from Butra on the 14th, or if in fact, this was an entirely different lecture. If in fact, it is one and the same, then we have two people telling two very different versions of the same event. You remember that gray area that I was talking about in the beginning of the episode? Yeah, well, this is one of those. But there is one thing that is absolutely certain, and that is that Garcia is doomed at Creighton. There is simply no walking this one back. It's over, and it's going to be sooner rather than later. And Butra, well, she's going to make sure that that happens. Apparently, at some point after he receives the email from Butra, Hunter tracks down Garcia and has a serious conversation with him. And by conversation, we mean that Hunter was doing all the talking. And we know this because Garcia then drafts the following email to Hunter, explaining his side of the situation. Bill Hunter, this letter is in response to our conversation today. Butra has on many occasions humiliated, degraded, and made fun of me. Before I even met her, the residents that were here last year told me that a doctor wrote a letter to the dean of the medical school saying that she was abusive to him. Residents also told me that there's a second doctor that does not like the way that Butra speaks with him. The chief resident described her as, quote, a difficult person. And a fourth doctor has told me that when she meets with her, Butra continues to ask her questions even after the doctor tells her that she knows nothing of the subject that is being asked of her. Butra continues to hound you by saying, you should know this, and why don't you know? Her purpose is to put you down and have you submit to her power. She uses her position to verbally abuse the residents she works with. For example, yesterday during a conference, she as usual began asking detailed questions continuously. She consistently said, why don't you know this material? She told me I was being sassy and told me not to come to her lectures. And finally, she told me to, quote, just shut up, end quote. 
During our conversation, you mentioned that she is one of the best surgical pathologists. She is aware of her position and that she can get away with many actions. She is surely aware that she can treat residents any way she wants. And she is aware that she will not be disciplined or fired. She is also aware that the residents have worked hard, have sacrificed, and have traveled a great distance to move to this area to become a resident. And Butra knows from experience that residents will take a lot of abuse from her because they have spent a lifetime to become a resident. Anthony J. Garcia, MD. So Garcia has articulated to Hunter what we have already surmised. And it should be noted that Hunter did not respond in writing to Garcia. That's one of the things about the business of hospitals and universities. Everything that is done by the people that run the operations is vetted by lawyers, as both of these institutions are hyper-vigilant about protecting themselves from possible lawsuits. That is what ultimately controls Bill Hunter's measured responses. We will never know if he agrees with and or believes Garcia's side of things because, well, to acknowledge that such things are taking place within Creighton in writing would potentially expose the university to liability. Hence, we get crickets from Hunter in response to Garcia's concerns. I understand it from the liability side of things, but for one moment, try to imagine being a resident who has worked their tail off to get through med school only to enter a residency program to be consistently told that you are not doctor material by one of your superiors who is supposed to be teaching you. All the while, the expectation of that person and the rest of the staff is that you simply keep quiet and swallow your medicine. I don't know. I have to be honest here. And I'm in no way making excuses for Garcia or his behavior, but I would have had an awfully hard time biting my tongue as well. I mean, a human being can only take so much abuse before they punch back. Believe it or not, it gets worse, much worse. And I can't wait to tell you about it on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, a couple quick reminders. Remember, get your tickets for the Dark History and Horror Con down in Champaign, Illinois on August 19th and 20th. You can find those tickets online. There's an amazing amount of podcasts and actor talent and all kinds of things, horror and dark history. Brian Ward has done an incredible job putting this entire thing together. You'll really be missing out if you can't get there. So try to make every effort to get there and we'll hang out. Also, don't forget true crime podcast festival down in dallas the following weekend which is the 26th through the 28th this is seriously the sickest lineup of podcasts and creators that you're ever going to get i think it blows away crime con but you know maybe that's just me i don't know but at any rate i'm doing a panel with josh hallmark of true crime bullshit that's going to be off the hook amazing also with charlie worrell another panel actually that's a round table where y'all get to sit with us and we get to discuss things together. So it's going to be amazing. I'm going to meet so many great creators who are all amazingly wonderful people. And I mean that genuinely. They're so engaging and they're so friendly. You'll have an amazing time and you'll collect all kinds of merch and all kinds of goodies and you'll just have a wonderful, wonderful time. So get your tickets for that. 
Make sure you're down in Dallas on the 26th to 28th. I can't wait to see you down there. And finally, to our patrons, we love you guys so, so much. Thank you for your continued support. Some of you guys drop off. Some of you guys come back. We love you either way. We love the support that you've given us in the past. We love the support that you're giving us now. You guys mean everything to us. We are so, so grateful that you're out there giving us that financial support. It means so much to both Darren and I. And then finally, to you, our beautiful, beautiful listeners, who, without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time.